Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called The Life of Christ, a study in the Gospel of Luke. In this series, we're spending time with Jesus to learn from Jesus how to be like Jesus. Thanks for joining us. So I get to, uh, I spend a lot of time with kids downstairs. That's my, my primary function right now in the family pastor. I spend time with kids uh, from kindergarten to fifth grade. And I hear a lot of interesting things on Sunday mornings. And uh, I hear a lot of interesting things about what they believe and think is true. And so I've actually said some of these things to my children. I've also been told some of them by your children. Um, one that I was told growing up, which is uh, just a complete lie, um, is you have to eat the crust of your bread because that's where the vitamins and nutrients are. <laughs> what a lie! But that's how I ate my crust. If you hold your face a certain way, I'm told downstairs, long enough it will... It freezes, right? I mean, we all know this. Um, when it thunders, Pastor Brian, did you know it's God bowling and he must have gotten a strike? <laughs> it's not a storm. It's God bowling. If you swallow your gum, it will stay in your stomach for seven years. Uh, if you swallow a watermelon seed, you'll grow watermelons in your stomach. Yeah. Um, if you don't wear your coat outside, you'll catch not true at all. But I'm told that all the time. And so these kids, they, they have these beliefs that just aren't true. And we do the same thing as adults, right? We, we do the same thing. We believe things that aren't true, but usually they're much more serious. And usually it has to do with who God is and who we are. And so maybe it sounds like this. Some of the lies we believe in our heads. Well, I'm not sure God's good. God keeps a record of wrongs against me. I feel like God is holding out on me. God is harsh and critical of me. He's just waiting to get me when I mess up. He's a vindictive God. There are things in my past that God could never forgive. I'm not perfect, so there's something wrong with me. I don't fit in anywhere. I'm defective, and God made a mistake when he made me. I feel like if you only knew who I really was, you wouldn't love me. I need blank in my life to feel fulfilled, satisfied, and valuable. Because if I don't have this something, whether it's a person or an addiction, I'll be missing out. And whether we're conscious of it or not, friends, whether we even know we believe these lies, they play out in how we live our lives and the decisions we make. One of the lies that I have believed for a long time, and I still struggle with today, and we're going to continue to struggle with these our whole life, is that I had to earn God's love. Well, the, the more good I did, the more God would love me, and when I messed up, the less he would love me. And do you understand the hamster wheel of faith that that leads to? Try harder, mess up, feel shame and extreme self-hatred, try even harder, mess up, and hate yourself even more. It's not the freedom that Christ came to give us. But when we believe the lies, it plays out in the decisions we make and the way we live our lives. If I asked you right now to consider what lie you believe about God or yourself, I think you could do it. I think you could identify something that you think about frequently. You could name the narrative that enters your mind when things don't go well. 
And the reason you can do that is because we all carry with us flawed images of God and flawed images of ourselves. We all do it. So whether this is your first Sunday here or you've been coming for a long time, I'm grateful you're here. I'm grateful you're here because we all carry these flaws, flawed images. We all believe these lies. And today we come to a story of a man who has believed a lie his entire life. And Jesus changes everything he thought was true. He changes everything. So we're in a series in the Gospel of Luke, and I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. It's the third Gospel in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you don't have a Bible, we have black Bibles in the seat back in front of you. I I always love it when people follow along, so if you could grab a black Bible and turn to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. It's on page 732 of those black Bibles. Our story of the blind man is going to pick up in verse 35 today. But before we get to our story, I want to ask you to look just above our story at verse 18. Context is so important when reading the Bible. And and so I just want to encourage you when you're reading the Bible, particularly the Gospels, and you're reading a certain story, read the story right before it and read the story right after it and gain some context of where your story might fit. And so that's what we're doing this morning. If we look at verse 18, this is what Jeff taught about last week. It's the story of the rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler believed the lie that following Jesus would cost him more than he would gain. That was the lie he believed. I'm going to have to give up more than I get. And then you go to verse 31 to 34, which is right before our story. And you have Jesus talking to his disciples. It says, telling them plainly that he's going to Jerusalem and everything that was written by the prophets about the son of man will be fulfilled. He will be mocked, insulted, spit on, flogged, killed. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. And we're told the disciples didn't understand any of it. They they just didn't get it. So if you're following in your notes, preceding this story are two stories of people who believed lies. One believes following Jesus costs too much, and the other wants to see Jesus be the kind of king they want him to be. You don't need to die, Jesus. You're a powerful king. They both believe lies. And so we come to our story, which begins in verse 35. Would you read this with me? In the first gray box on your notes, it says... As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. He called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. If we pause long enough to look at these four verses, we, we know that the man is a beggar. He's blind. He's poor. He's sitting by the roadside in a city named Jericho, 15 miles from Jerusalem, and he's sitting where beggars would sit, which is outside or on the way into a major city. What we also need to know is that in biblical times, it was believed and taught frequently that people who had any disability were cursed people. It was either because of something their parents did or something they did. Their problem was due to sin. And I'm just betting that this man wonders daily what he did to deserve this terrible punishment of being blind. 
Day after day, this man believes lies and he sits in his own personal darkness, bearing the condemnation of believing that his poverty and blindness are a curse because of something he did. One of the lies the man believes, if you're following on your notes, the man believed he was cursed as a result of sin. That's what he was told. He would have heard that from the time he was a little boy. And if that's not painful enough, as a blind person, if this man would ever make it to Jerusalem, 15 miles away, he would have been excluded from worshiping God at the temple with others. They would have never let him in. And an ancient text that I read this week, this is fascinating, friends. An ancient text that I read this week said that blind people would be excluded from the messianic banquet that all followers of Jesus would eat from when he returns. Excluded. There's no place for you. If you're falling on your notes, the blind man would have felt excluded and untouchable, filled with shame and condemnation. It's not hard to believe that the blind man believes these lies. And the reason I can imagine that he believes these lies is because he's human. Because if we're told something enough times, or we experience something enough times, we begin to believe it. And he's been told this since he was a little boy. It has shaped his identity. We all know this to be true because we all carry lies. So if you're following in your notes, a lie the blind man believes is his identity is shaped by the lies he believes. It affects the decisions he makes, and how he thinks. By the way, our identity is shaped by the lies we believe too. Also, from the first first four verses of the story, Jesus has a huge following by this time on his way to Jerusalem. I'm talking thousands of people are following Jesus. So so there's this crowd going by, and this uh, um, this blind man asks, what's going on? And they tell him that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And when he hears the man say this, the man cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Did you catch that? He didn't call him Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on me. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, by the time of Jesus, son of David had become a favorite title in Judaism for the Messiah. The Messiah that would come from David's line, who would be the long-awaited Savior, the promised one of God. And it would have been well known all over the prophets that one of the promises of the Messiah would be the healing of the blind. The Messiah would heal the blind. So everything in this man's response to Jesus show that he has heard something about him and he believes that Jesus can change his life. Maybe it's a moment he's waited for, but he never thought would come. But the blind man believes that Jesus can help him. Catch the context, right? A blind beggar could see that Jesus was the Messiah, while the rich young ruler, the religious leaders, and even his own disciples were blinded to his identity. A blind man gets it. He sees Jesus. And this is amazing. This blind man could have asked for anything anything, and he asks for mercy. Have mercy on me. Mercy, friends, is not getting what we deserve. It's not getting what we deserve. He cries out for a gift he knows he doesn't deserve. Remember, 
This is a man who has believed his whole life. He believes the lie that he has done something to deserve this blindness. And remember, this man would not have been allowed to worship God with others, and he believes that at the end of days, he will be excluded from heaven because he doesn't deserve it. And he asks Jesus for mercy. Can I have what I don't deserve? And continuing in verse 39, we read, Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But Jesus, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then would you read verse 40 in the second grade box in your notes? It says, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? So just like we pulled out some bad news from the first four verses, let's pull out some good news from these verses. And the first piece of good news, don't miss this, if you're following in your notes, is that Jesus stops and makes time and space for the man. He makes time and space. We see this all over the Gospels. Jesus is surrounded by people. He's busy. He has places to go. He has dinner reservations to keep. And we see him make time for people. He looks them in the eye. He acknowledges them. He gives them attention. And we need to know he still does that today. This is good news for us. He still makes time and space for us. We're told that we can boldly approach him anytime in prayer. And he will make time for us. And I also pray, church, that we would know this is good news we can give other people. This is practicing hospitality. When we give other people our attention and our time, maybe a meal around our table, when we make time and space for people, it means something. We're showing them the hospitality of Jesus. It's good news to people in a world of people that are starving for connection. It's good news. So Jesus then orders that the blind man be brought near. So I tell kids downstairs all the time, I say, every Sunday I say this, who do we always want to put in the Bible story? And inevitably, after five years, they still shout out, we want to put God in the story. And I'm like, no, no, God's always in the story. He's the main character. We always want to put ourselves in the story. They go, oh yeah, ourselves, ourselves. So we always want to put ourselves in the story. And so right now, can you, can we all imagine this? Your heart would be pounding because the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, has stopped and said, bring him near. I mean, your heart's got to be pounding. And there you are standing face to face with Jesus. Jesus with the most penetrating eyes that have ever walked the earth and the sightless sockets of the blind man. We are standing face to face and Jesus says these good words of good news. (laughs) What do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine this? I don't know if anybody's ever asked this man this his entire life. The one he believes to be the savior, savior of the world, the one he's heard about and waited for has asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He, he asked us that question as well. We'll talk about that later. 
But hold on to this encounter for just a moment, right? So Jesus here, blind man here, face to face. I want to take a little detour and go over to Mark chapter 10. You don't need to flip there. If you want to, you can. But Mark chapter 10, it's one gospel removed from Luke. This story takes place in Mark chapter 10. And in Mark chapter 10, the story immediately preceding the story of this blind man is a conversation between Jesus and two of his disciples named James and John. James and John come to Jesus and they say, listen, they're on this same road that this man is begging on. They're on the same road on the way to Jericho. James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, can we ask you a question? And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And in response to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? His two followers say, hey, Jesus, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in glory. Give us seats of honor. And Jesus tells them they don't know what they're asking. They're asking for power. They're saying, Jesus, we deserve this. We've left everything to follow you. We deserve seats of honor. So you imagine now, right? We've gotten to Jericho. This conversation just took place. We are now at the outskirts of Jericho. And on this same road, Jesus comes to a blind man and says, What do you want me to do for you? And James and John are right there with Jesus. Maybe they're even looking over his shoulder. But they are listening to this conversation. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And in verse 41, the blind man answers, Lord, I want to see. I just want my sight. The disciples, they want to sit on thrones and reign with Jesus. They want the power they think they can deserve. They want to sit at places of honor. The blind man sits in the dust and he doesn't make any demand for glory. He asks for something he doesn't think he even deserves. Mercy. He doesn't want a place of honor at the table. He just wants to see so he can be at the table. He just wants Jesus. That's all he wants because his blindness is keeping him from him. He believes this lie. (laughs) And our story concludes in verse 42. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus, praising God. And when all the people saw it, they also praised God. Jesus says, your faith has healed you. This man knew something about Jesus. He believed Jesus was who he said he was. He believed he could heal him. And Jesus did. And he was given his sight. And he was given access. The man was given good news. And imagine this again, right? Immediately the blind man's eyes open up for the first time and rubbing his face. He's probably rubbing his eyes and he sees colors for the first time. It's Jericho, the city of palms. I wonder if he sees palm trees for the first time. He sees the mountains of Moab in the distance, which are just outside of Jericho. And the first thing this guy sees is the face of Jesus. The one he wanted to see in the first place. He sees Jesus. 
And the good news, friends, if you're following in your notes, is Jesus gave the blind man mercy. He gave him what he didn't deserve. It's like Jesus is saying, you didn't deserve that blindness. You didn't do anything to cause it. This is the good news. Now you have mercy. Now you have sight. Friends, this is good news. Jesus still asks people today, what do you want me to do for you? What do you need to be healed from? What stronghold do you need to be released from? What idol in your life needs to be broken? What is it? Because Jesus wants to know, what do you want me to do for you? And if we want to play games and not tell him, he won't do it. But if we want to get real and say, God, this is what I need from you. I need mercy. He will give us what we need. And friends, if anybody's here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus and you're, you're just sitting here and you're like, I, I don't know about this. Um, this is a little bit weird to me or I've done so much wrong in my past. I, I can't forget about it. God can't forget about it. Like none of us deserve this. What we deserve is separation from God forever because we were created by God, but we've all made our own choices and sin and rebelled against the one who created us and our sin separates us. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves right again. You know what the only thing we can do is? Is to say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's it. And when you say those words, you will be given mercy and you'll be forgiven and you will spend now an eternity with God. He heals us. So I previously mentioned that this story also appears in the gospel of Mark. In Mark, this man is named. The blind man is named. His name was Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. And the wonder of the restoration of his sight, it goes even deeper. Because woven into the fabric of this story is a detail that I think is easy to overlook. With the exceptions of Jesus' friend Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, and Malchus, whose ear was cut off the night before Jesus died, Bartimaeus stands as the only healing miracle with a name. It's the only one with a name attached to it. So it must be important that we're given his name. Everyone else in healing miracles are identified in less specific terms like the demon-possessed man, the cleansed leper, the afflicted woman, Jairus' daughter, the centurion's servant. They're just, they're just vague names. Bartimaeus is named for a reason. It's a hybrid word from Aramaic and Greek, the two popular languages of Jesus uh, while he lived. His name means son of honor. It means son of honor. And friends, I want to suggest that when Jesus heals Bartimaeus, he does more than a physical healing. If you're following your notes, Jesus restores his name. He says, Bartimaeus, you're a son of honor. Your faith in me has made you a son of honor. In essence, Jesus is revealing who Bartimaeus has been called to be all along. Jesus isn't just restoring his physical sight, but his dignity as a child of God. Bartimaeus, the story starts with him sitting by the road begging and ends with him on the road following Jesus, proclaiming good news for other people to hear now. It's a beautiful story of restoration. And this is good news for us because Jesus is still in the restoration business. He still redeems names. 
We're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12, to all who receive him, to all who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. He still is in the restoration business. It's a beautiful story of Jesus healing a blind man, but I hope you see that there's a deeper healing that took place, and it was the man's identity. He no longer has to believe the lies that he's been told his whole life. The reason that we need to hear this story is because we all have an identity crisis. We all believe lies. We all have a narrative in our minds that contain bad news about who God is or who we are. And the reason we have, we, we all carry this with us is because we have an enemy who lies to us. If you're following in your notes, Satan is called the father of lies. He's the father of lies. And his strategy, this is his strategy, it's to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. That's his strategy, to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. There is an author named Neil Anderson, who I recently read a book of his. He says in his book, this, I wanted to share this quote with you, it's so helpful. He says, he, Satan, can't change God, and he can't do anything to change our identity and position in Christ if we follow Christ. If, however, he can get us to believe a lie, we will live as though our identity in Christ is not true. We will live as if it's not true and we will make decisions based on that lie. For Bartimaeus and us, these lies are core beliefs about reality that don't line up with what God says about reality. Sometimes we're not even aware this is going on, but it's in our operating system. It's the bad news we tell ourselves. It's the story we play over and over in our head. And if you're following in your notes, the lies and truth are most likely going to center on who God is and who we are. That's what they'll center on. That's where Satan goes to distort the character of God and the truth of who we are. And if you're following in your notes as well, many times these lies will come as feelings. They'll come as feelings. This is so important. Friends, we need to distinguish between the lie of how we feel and the truth of who we are because how we feel is frequently not the truth. Our feelings often do not reflect the reality of God's word because they don't line up with God's word. For example, I wonder if any of you have ever thought this or struggled with this. Some of these I've struggled with. It says, so here's an example of how feelings can lie to us. And then we make decisions based on those feelings and that lie. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I can't live without this person. I feel like I love them, so I need to go ahead and marry them. If I choose to follow Jesus, I feel like I'll have to give up more than I gain. So I'm going to put Jesus off for a little while. That's the rich young ruler. I feel like what I have to offer is insignificant, so God can't use me. I won't get involved in anything. I deserve to be happy, and I don't feel happy right now in this marriage, and God wants me to be happy, so it's okay to walk away from my marriage. See how that feeling leads to a really bad decision? It's a lie we believe. When I'm successful at work, I feel like I have more value. So even if that means my family gets less of me, it's worth it. Feelings lead to decisions. I feel like if I worry about this, I'll still maintain some control over the situation. So I'm going to continue to worry about this and let it eat me up inside. 
Our feelings lie to us, and Satan uses feelings frequently to get us to believe a lie to then act on it and sin. That's how he works. And if we act on these feelings, they take us places we frequently don't want to go. Friends, listen, listen, listen. Feelings are good warning signs to pay attention to. They really are. They are terrible barometers of truth. They're good warning signs, terrible barometers of truth. And so if you're here this morning and it's running through your mind like, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. Why do I still struggle with these lies? There must be something wrong with me. Am I even saved? I just want you to know this is something we will all struggle with as followers of Jesus till the day we die. And the reason we will believe these lies is because before we started following Jesus, we had already developed thought patterns. We had already developed bad habits. And we had already put things in our brain that are going to keep coming back to us and back to us. There's nothing wrong with you if you're a follower of Jesus and still struggle with these things. But what I do want us to know today If you're following on your notes, as followers of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can control what we think about. We can control what we think about. We can stop believing these lies and replace them with the truth of God. The Bible speaks to this. The Bible tells us how we can replace these lies with truth. In Proverbs, in chapter 4, I I love today's English version. It says, be careful how you think. Your life is shaped by your thoughts. It's the warning. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In Romans 12, chapter 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The New Living Translation of Romans 12, 2 says, Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. As followers of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can control what we think about. We can, we can kill the lies and walk in truth. So the question is, how do we renew our minds? How do we do this? The first thing, if you're following in your notes, we name the lie and we expose the darkness. We name the lie and we expose the darkness. Our first step is simply paying attention and naming the lie when it comes. It's a naming of reality. It's agreeing with God about what's right. We're confessing to God what he already knows. God, this is how I feel right now. God, I'm believing this right now. I'm really struggling right now, God, but I'm naming it. Like what we do a lot is we listen to the lies. We don't speak the truth to God. And so we need to do that. We name reality. We name the lie and expose the darkness. And I love how Ephesians 5 talks about bringing the darkness to light. Because while it may be painful to expose darkness, light disinfects and heals. The light of Jesus heals. We name it. We expose the darkness. But we've got to pay attention. So many of us, myself included, we just barrel through life and we never stop to name the operating system we're functioning under. Once we've named the lie, number two, we dig into the lie with compassion and curiosity. We ask why. We pray and ask God, why do I believe this, God? What's going on here? Listen, don't shame and condemn yourself. 
Don't hate yourself. Just be interested in what's going on. And please don't skip asking why. Because I think our tendency is once we've determined the lie, our gut reaction is to jump into fixing it. We, we, we want to make things right. We want to fix it. We want to do something. And I think what happens is that short circuits a work that God wants to do in us. Because when we fix it, when we go from naming a lie to wanting to fix it, we go around the bad news and the lie. But the way to freedom is not by fixing our bad news and going around it. It's by going into the bad news and letting God speak good news into the bad news. Right? Our tendency is to go around bad news and fix it. And that's not the way to freedom. That's managing a problem. The way to freedom is to name the bad news and then put God's word on it to speak into the bad news, to disinfect it and heal it. And that's why the third thing in renewing our minds, if you're following in your notes, we replace the lie with God's truth and we remember what he says. We replace that lie with God's truth. And the good news, it's going to be specific for every person in this room because the lie is specific for every person in this room. And if the lies are about who God is and who we are, then the truth will be about who God is and who we are. And I want you all to know this. The good news is full of grace and truth. It's honest, but convicting. It might hurt, but it is freeing and it is life-giving. If the voice you hear in your head when you walk through this exercise is a voice of fear or guilt or shame, if it's a voice that says, try harder or do more, or if it's a voice that says, listen, your sin is not a big deal. If that's the voice you hear and you think it's truth, you're being lied to again because that's the voice of Satan. Jesus does not sound like that. Jesus will speak to you in grace and truth and it, his word, his truth will always align with the book that you're holding on your lap. If you think you're hearing something from the Lord and it doesn't align with what his word says, it's not the truth. And that's why we so encourage you to be in God's word each day because we need to be reminded of the good news daily. I need to be reminded of the good news daily. And it's been my experience that when God speaks good news to us, we need to remember it daily because Satan will keep coming back to the same place where we are most vulnerable and he will do it again and again and again and again. And we need to remember the truth that replaces it. So I don't know what that means for you, whether it's a certain verse or you memorize a verse, you're in God's word daily and you're just asking God for truth. If you put it on a mirror, if you put it on your steering wheel, how are you keeping truth in front of you to combat the lies that the enemy will throw at you every day? We need to be proactive on this. And this is why followers of Jesus need the good news too. It's not just for salvation. It's for daily living. So I want to ask you, what lie are you believing that needs to be replaced with the truth? What is it? I don't know what it is for you, but we want to give you the f a few minutes to process this. The good news for the blind man, keep your notes out for me. We're going to use this in just a minute. The good news for the blind man was that Jesus made time and space. He asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he gave him mercy. He still does those things for us. So I want to encourage you over the next couple minutes. 
On the back of your notes, we've included some common examples of lies that we believe about God or lies that we believe about ourselves. The lie you believe may not even be on there. But pay attention as you walk through this. If something catches your attention and stands out to you or you go back to it, pay attention to that because many times when things catch our attention, it's God trying to break through into our life. And so we want to encourage you, would you, would you take time right now? Would you name the lie? And if you don't know what it is, ask God what it is. And then begin asking questions. And this is something I'd encourage you to do throughout the week. Life groups are going to work on this this week. This just begins to scratch the surface. But I guarantee that if you take this seriously, it can change your life. I still struggle with the lie that I have to earn God's love or that people love me for what I do and not who I am. I will probably wrestle with that until the day I die. But to come to a place where I can remember daily, Zephaniah 3.17 just stopped me in my tracks. The Savior delights in his children and rejoices over them with singing. He loves me for who I am, not what I do. And that has led to such freedom that I don't have to live any longer in this bondage to the lie that I need to keep performing or trying harder or that I need to impress people. And so what lie needs to be replaced by the truth for you? What do you need healed from? What do you need healed from? What do you need freedom from bondage from? What idol needs to be brought down? What stronghold needs to be broken? Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And we want to give you an opportunity to tell him.